0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, Helber 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with chaos on Capitol Hill as the nihilists on the House Freedom Caucus rebuke their weak Speaker McCarthy for a second time, blocking a Pentagon spending bill, making a government shutdown on September 30 much more likely, if not inevitable. Joining us is Mike Lofgren, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16, as a senior analyst on the House and Senate budget committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. Then we will examine the misplaced focus on the moral authoritarianism of Leonard Leo and the Federalist in terms of abortion, etc., while not noticing the plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary by Leo's dark money from right-wing billionaires bent on deconstructing the administrative state. Joining us is Caroline Fredrickson, a visiting professor at Georgetown Law and a strategic counselor on democracy and power at the Open Markets Institute. She served as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office, a general counsel and legal director for NAREL Pro-Choice America, and during the Clinton administration as a Special Assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs. In 2021, she was appointed a member of, the, of President Biden's Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States and is the President Emerita of the American Constitutional Society, and her books include The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections, and we will discuss her op-ed at The Atlantic what I most regret about my decades of legal activism. Then finally, with tensions between India and Canada escalating as India cancels Canadian visas, we'll investigate Prime Minister Trudeau's remarks to Parliament on Monday that there is credible evidence Indian agents assassinated a Sikh activist on Canadian soil. Joining us is Christian Duprecht, a professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at the Royal Military College of Canada and editor-in-chief of the Canadian Military Journal, whose research includes national security and defense policy, politically motivated violent extremism and terrorism, border security, and the political, economic, security, social and cultural implications of demographic change. His latest books include Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, Patterns in Border Security, Regional Comparisons, and Security Cooperation Governance, the Canada-United States Open Border Paradox. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Mike Lofgren, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate budget committees, which gave him ringside seats on top. Hurricane Katrina, Disaster Relief, Debates on the Pentagon Budget, and the Amazing Antics of Various Deficit Reduction Commissions. And he's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, Our Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Lofgren. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, Speaker McCarthy is looking weaker and weaker. On Thursday morning, the radicals on the House... Freedom Caucus blocked a Pentagon funding bill for the second time, and Marjorie Taylor Greene switched sides. She normally supports McCarthy, but no, she decided she didn't like having any money for Ukraine in the spending bill, the Pentagon bill, even though Zelensky is visiting the House and the Senate today in the White House, making an impassioned plea saying, if you don't give us money now, the war will go on forever. So, those that complain about a never ending war uh, miss the whole point, according to Zelensky, you know, that if we lose, and we will lose if you don't give us any money, then the war will go on. So, they don't make any sense, I guess. I am i know I'm rambling a bit here, but do they make any sense to you? Can you figure out why they're doing this with this looming shutdown now of the government likely to happen on September the uh, 30th?
1: Because they're nihilists. Uh, They want the government to shut down uh, because that's the sort of thing Republicans do. Now, the rationale uh, has constantly been a moving target of why they want to do this. Um, Now, in May, when McCarthy made the agreement with Biden uh, to avoid another catastrophe, uh, the debt default, uh that established what the top line number for uh uh appropriations uh for the government would be uh so they reneged on that agreement uh and said well that's a ceiling it's not a floor and uh they wanted to and they actually tried to advance bills that went nowhere um, that would have draconian go- cuts to the government that went nowhere uh... so now they've shifted their rationale such that well it isn't about that it's about uh, border security so if they're changing the reasons why they need to shut down the government those are just uh, excuses the real thing is they want to shut down the government And among all this stuff, within the Republican conference in the House, there's been a fight for another thing. It's, we'll shut down the government if you don't uh, move a motion to impeach Biden. Um, So that's yet another thing. They're just reaching for for excuses and rationales. But really, what they want to do is cause chaos. Now, I don't see how that helps them politically in the election because the party that shuts down the government uh, never succeeds.
0: Right, but Mike, they are also taking their orders from Donald Trump. Trump today wrote on Truth Social... Republicans in Congress can and must defund all aspects of Crooked Joe Biden's weaponized government that refuses to close the border and treats half the country as enemies of the state. This is also the last chance to defund these political prosecutions against me and other patriots. They failed on the debt limit, but they must not fail now. Use the power of the purse and defend the country. So that's a he's giving his freedom caucus acolytes and, and sycophants marching orders isn't he
1: well he, he is uh in fact the de facto speaker of the house he's the one giving the orders mccarthy is the weakest the weakest speaker i have ever seen it's got to the point where at, after today uh now they're they're gonna shut down go home um you even see Republican House members saying to the press openly, we're dysfunctional. And you may like or dislike uh, Nancy Pelosi, but at least she knew how to count votes. So that that shows, that, you know, the handful of sane people on, in the Republican conference, at least I'll recognize this is going on.
0: Right. But for example, Clyburn, a member of the Democratic leadership, he's saying, I don't understand this. My advice is go sit down with Hakeem Jeffries if he's got a solid majority of his caucus. Why wouldn't he? This is the tail wagging the dog. It's not the way to do it. Now, of course, that's logical to bring the Democrats on board and you have a majority with the the sensible Republicans that you just referred to. But the minute McCarthy did that... He would
1: forfeit his speakership.
0: Exactly. So he's trapped by the... This is the tail wagging the dog, isn't it? The lunatic uh, running the asylum.
1: Absolutely.
0: So where's it heading? And what are the consequences for government workers and for the American public?
1: Uh, Well, they'll find out. Uh, for instance, uh, people don't think about it, but you know, are the employees of the Federal Aviation Administration uh, going to be inspecting uh, commercial airliners, or will they be furloughed?
0: Not a a good time to fly, right? Not a good
1: time to fly, necessarily.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, If we're hit by a uh, another hurricane or some natural disaster—who's uh, going to pay for it? Uh, all those work, FEMA workers have been furloughed.
0: Right. What about the the military, though? Will soldiers will not sailors and airmen won't get paid?
1: Um, that is correct. Uh, that's why they tried to pass. Uh, a bill that would not the omnibus that would fund the entire government, but a separate bill that would just uh appropriate money for the Department of Defense and that failed again today.
0: Right. Right. Over, over money for Ukraine at the very moment that right. it included
1: money for Ukraine.
0: Right. Oh, it's so bizarre, isn't it? You know, are these characters like Marjorie Taylor Greene and and the others that are performing. They are they are performers, albeit kind of tawdry and embarrassingly, you know, cheap. But that's what they're doing. Along with Murray Taylor Green, you've got Andy Biggs of Arizona, Dan Bishop of North Carolina, Eli Crane of Arizona, and Matt Rosenthal of Montana. So there, that's it. He's <laughs> he only has what a majority of four, right? So he's he's cooked, right, McCarthy. So that's uh, that's the much. power they have, but I guess my question though is, are these clowns just doing this uh, along with Matt Gates to audition for Fox News? Is that really what their motive is?
1: Uh, yeah, that's probably it,
0: so that they can appear on Fox News and rile up the Fox base and the magA people and and that's their function they're not they're not in the business they're of government. Not.
1: Uh, There to do anything but draw a salary uh, and issue press releases and give floor speeches, Uh, anything to do with work uh, on behalf of the American people is uh, simply gone by the board. I mean, I don't know if anyone caught the hearing yesterday, uh, but hearings have become worthless they're simply a vehicle with which uh in this case Merrick Garland was the witness uh they're just a vehicle for republicans to launder uh disinformation and get it out into the public sphere
0: right and again i they're think they're
1: not they're not really um hearings at all they're they're show trials in the same spirit, uh, the way the, they abused the witness, certainly, they are show trials uh, in the spirit of Stalin's show trials, and Merrick Garland was simply fulfilling the role of uh, Bukharin in 1937. Mm.
0: Well, again, they the chair, Jim Jordan, was auditioning for Fox News as well, and the other grandstanders as well. So I think Biden is being wise just to let them implode. But the country's going to suffer, and the U.S.'s credibility around the world will suffer. Is there any way to... I mean, I guess there's no way to stop the shutdown because, they're, as you say, they're nihilists. But is there any way to have a situation where you know you can avoid these kind of things in the future? I mean... Isn't that a logical way to have some kind of regime?
1: That- well, it only works if people uh, stand by their word uh, rather than being totally faithless. Uh, Biden already made an agreement in May to avoid this, and the House uh, Republican conference has decided to renege on that, or at least portions of them
0: have. So then they're just going to continue to do these uh, continuing resolutions, right?
1: Yeah, the, the short-term continuing resolution. Uh, that's probably the, the most likely scenario.
0: Right. But not a, not in any kind of fix where you simply can't keep doing this, both on the debt limit and now on the budget. Some sort then, of
1: global agreement that would uh, enshrine into law or otherwise make permanent uh, a, a fix to this uh, is really just about impossible. Plus, I mean, there's the practical point that this Congress cannot bind a future Congress uh, that is elected in uh, November of 20, 2024.
0: Well, but just in closing, though, it all goes back to Trump. He's the most irresponsible politician in American history. I mean, what he's doing now its insane, and it's all about him. Surprise, surprise, you know.
1: Well, uh, I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, he's been endorsed by uh, Vladimir Putin.
0: Well, he's doing uh his best to weaken America, so I guess <laughs> he's the gift that keeps on giving as far as Putin's concerned.
1: that is correct and uh, uh Kremlin also has various factotems in the uh, House and Senate uh Rand Paul is one i mean he's had a long history of being very chummy uh With Russia, Um, uh, others like Josh Hawley, uh, J.D. Vance, uh, they're in the same boat. They're not worried about the money. They actually uh, favor Russia.
0: Well, Mike, um, I thank you for joining us. And uh, from your long experience as a senior analyst on the House and Senate budget committees, this must look like, like a really bad movie.
1: Uh, It's a train wreck with an airliner crashing into the wreck. It's really bad.
0: Well, again, I've been speaking with Mike Lofkin, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate budget committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. We're going to take a brief station break back examining the misplaced focus on the moral authoritarianism of Leonard Leo and the Federalists in terms of abortion, etc., while not noticing the plutocratic capture of the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary by Leo's dark money from right-wing billionaires bent on deconstructing the administrative state. I can see by your eyes, you must feel- Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Caroline Fredrickson, a visiting professor of Georgetown Law and a strategic counselor on democracy and power at the Open Markets Institute. She served as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office, as general counsel and legal director of NARAL Pro Choice America, and during the Clinton administration as special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. In 2021, she was appointed a member of President Biden's Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States and is the President-Emeritor of the American Constitution Society, and her books include The Democracy Fix: How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections, and she has an op-ed at The Atlantic, What I Most Regret About My Decades of Legal Activism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Caroline Fredrickson.
2: Well, thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Caroline. And what is it that you most regret?
2: <laughs> well, this is something that I guess has been long in the birthing, in the sense that I've been ruminating about this um, for quite, um, quite a long time, which is really how complex the right-wing legal movement is, in, in the sense that how very strategic and far-reaching their plans were. Uh, and we think we tend to segment so much, uh, when we think about the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo, the Heritage Foundation, um, the overturning of Roe, and so forth, but really this was a very integrated plan that included a very uh, important piece that we tend to overlook, which is the the destruction of the regulatory state and the financial controls that we have um, on on corporations to prevent monopoly and consolidation. And the upshot of that is the more that the right has won in terms of putting judges on the court, it's not just been uh, to dismantle Roe and to threaten all sorts of other important gains, but also to drive an agenda that enables the plutocrats that fund the right-wing legal movement to make more and more money by allowing them to engage in monopolistic behavior uh, hence the situation that we're in right now, where so few people in America own so much.
0: Well, there is, of course, a case now before this Supreme Court where Alito refused to accuse himself because the lawyer for this bringing the case, which is essentially a case that means that billionaires won't have to pay taxes. This lawyer was the guy that co-wrote the recent op-ed that Alito wrote in the Wall Street Journal. And yet Alito wouldn't recuse himself from this case. So if that's not a sweetheart situation, I don't know what is.
2: Oh, absolutely. I I mean, I think what what we I just it really took me back to um, in writing this to thinking through some of the stages here. Um, And I've started um, um, digging into issues around monopoly and antitrust. And in part because I'm working with the Open Markets Institute, which is a terrific organization, which is to trying to. Uh, raise our awareness of these really important issues, but to look back at the beginning of um, what we think about as the real um, the growth of the right wing legal movement during the Reagan administration, there was uh, a real effort um, to ensure that right wing judges like Scalia and Posner um, and Robert Bork got on the bench, and it wasn't just because they were attacking fundamental um, uh, uh, rights that we uh, that we hold so dear. But really, and almost more insidiously and importantly, it was because they were advancing this sort of Chicago school um, deregulatory agenda. Um, but more than that, Ian, what really got to me was to see how they were able to infiltrate the left. And that is what really kind of brought me up short because they've been running these schools for judges, for law professors, And promoting this agenda around antitrust policy. It sounds really dry. That's why we didn't pay attention to it. We are all focused on voting rights, reproductive rights, as we need to be because they're so under threat and they're so important. But at the same time, they were indoctrinating our entire judiciary judiciary. I mean, by 1990, something like 50% of the federal judges had already attended these judge schools run by um, uh, uh, what ended up at George Mason Law School, which is now called the Antonine Scalia Law School, and it's still there. They still go. Ruth Bader Ginsburg went. All sorts of other democratically appointed judges went. And they imbibed this stuff. And when you look at how this has affected the law, again, it seems really dry. But what they've done is over time really dismantled the protections against the consolidation of wealth and power uh, economic power in so few hands that has tipped the balance on so many issues, including the social issues that we pay so much attention to. That's the money is coming, uh, mm-hmm. coming from these sources, the Koch brothers, et cetera, who've made their money this way. They know why they want these judges. Abortion is an afterthought.
0: Well, in your article, The Atlantic, Caroline Fredrickson, What I Most Regret About My Decades of Legal Activism, you point out that in 2017, Justice Breyer on the Supreme Court wrote the majority opinion in a case upholding the right of debt collection companies to go after people for money they no longer owed. And then you had the case of Sonia Sotomayor in the same year. She limited the Securities and Exchange Commission's power to force those found guilty of securities fraud to give up their stolen gains. And also the liberal judges on the Supreme Court joined in with the conservative majority or the right-wing majority on that case about the former governor of Virginia, uh, McDonald, uh, Mm -hmm. who was busted over corruption, watering down the very laws against corruption as though somehow that's acceptable in politics.
2: Well, exactly. If you look around you, uh, at these cases and the trajectory of the law in this area, you will find that the democratically appointed or the the, the, the judges appointed by Democrats, including the justices, have gone in lockstep. Um, and Justice Breyer was actually a central player in the major re- deregulatory agenda when he worked um, on uh, um, for Senator Kennedy, who was part of this as well, and when he worked at the Justice Department as they advanced efforts to um, deregulate the airline industry uh, and others. And we see what's happened. The idea behind deregulation was there's supposed to be more competition. What we end up with is what, four or five airlines in the United States, because we don't have an antitrust law anymore that's being enforced, uh, or anti-monopoly law. Now, I say that except for the fact that President Biden has appointed actually two really strong enforcers who are trying to um, change uh, the direction and actually go back to the, what those laws, the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, were, were meant to do. You know, the irony here, Ian, is that, that conservative uh, uh, lawyers and law professors and judges claim to be originalists and textualists. They are absolutely, completely ignoring the text and the history and, the, and all of the precedents that existed until the 1980s. 19, 19, uh, under all these acts, which were passed, you know, the Sherman Act at the end of the 19th century. It was really addressing monopoly, and 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 it's had the, the heart ripped out of it.
0: Well, you also point out in your article that in July, a judge appointed by President Biden to the United States District Court waved through the largest tech merger ever between Microsoft and the giant video game publisher Activision Blizzard over the objections of the Federal Trade Commission and its Biden-appointed chair, Lena Khan. So, very few politicians, though, seem to be onto what's going on here. And you mentioned Leonard Leo. And Leonard Leo operates basically what, what he's bringing forth, given that he's basically handpicked most of the Supreme Court and, and a lot of the federal judiciary. He has this sort of opus day obsession with patriarchal control of women's bodies. But what is missed is that he also him and the Federalists, are also about laissez-faire capitalism. And that's where all the money has come from, from all these dark money fronts that Leonard Leo set up, including the one that just got $1.6 billion from one right-wing businessman in Chicago. And you mentioned the Koch brothers and others. Apart from Sheldon Adelson, I don't see anybody recognizing that this is a one-two punch on the part Of uh, Leonard Leo.
2: And that's exactly right. And that's why I want to bring attention uh, to this very important issue that when we ignore this, we actually undermine all of the values that we have. And all the whole the fight that we are undertaking on voting rights, civil rights, uh, reproductive rights, uh, 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 LGBTQ uh, rights, those are all being undermined because we're ignoring what's going on Uh, in terms of consolidation um, and the strengthening of the right wing's economic power because the money is driving those social issues as well. So if we don't address their ability to change the law in their favor, to manipulate doctrine so that they can hold on to ill-gotten gains, so that they can engage in monopolistic practices, so they can shut down competition, if we don't pay attention to that, then we are actually allowing them to fund the anti abortion movement, because that's what they're doing. It's all a consolidated effort.
0: Well, indeed, all the coverage of Justice Alito and Thomas's complicity and you know hanging out with a billionaire who collects Nazi memorabilia and all of that stuff never focused in on the fact that these Supreme Court justices represent billionaires. They don't represent the 99.9999% of Americans. And again, one of the things that Senator Whitehouse points out is that the Supreme Court has already been captured by plutocrats. And this is an alarming fact that we, that we have to deal with, let alone redress. And the point that he makes is that they can't sell their terrible ideas through the legislative or executive branch because people don't want to vote that blatantly against their own interests for the interest of a handful of people. So they found the perfect vehicle to get their wish list. And that's the Supreme court.
2: Uh, absolutely. Ian. And, and it's really, you know, I'm, I'm writing a longer paper about the sort of judicial education project that they've engaged in, but there's been some amazing um, research done in, um, in the the transformation of the law over time in in the areas, particularly around antitrust and monopoly, but also generally about uh, overregulation. Um, and since um, the the Federalist Aligned um, Judicial Education Project at the uh, the um, George Mason Law School um, was in, started, There have been an enormous number and a very high percentage of the federal judiciary and the state judiciary have gone to this school. Um, It sounds um, anodyne, right? They're just learning about economic policy so that when they get these cases dealing with economic policy, they can understand it better. Um, Well, guess what? They take them to Captiva Island, um, to um, very beautiful resorts in Florida and other places. Um, They put them together together. They have they they spend a couple hours in class. Originally, it was with people like Milton Friedman, um, and they are taught uh, the Chicago School of view of economics and how that should apply in cases involving businesses now, um, and that has absolutely captured the federal judiciary to the extent that I you know as I said again I feel I sound like a broken record but um, you know we're really not understanding that just because these judges are appointed by democratic presidents doesn't mean they have a good position on this. You know, this is really Joe Biden is an anomaly in terms of American democratic American presidents in um in the last, you know, 40 years because they just didn't pay attention to this stuff and the right was laughing all the way to the bank.
0: But it's reached a point now when you look at the fact that the house cannot pass a spending bill and they're deadlocked and McCarthy's going to have to keep the house open on Friday and Saturday because the deadline to fund the government is coming up on September the 30th so it's one thing for the plutocrats to want to capture the government and deregulate and in the words of Stephen Bannon to deconstructing the regulatory state Mm -hmm. but It's one thing to want to undo the regulatory state, but it's another thing to want to have these radicals literally paralyze government itself. I mean, we know that some of these radicals on the right have talked about shrinking the government down to the point where you could drown it in a bathtub. But this is a direct assault on government itself that's going on with the Freedom Caucus radicals uh, in the House. They... Basically, will tank the U.S. economy, and troops won't get paid. Government workers will be laid off. I mean, this is radical stuff that's happening now. So, is that a part of their agenda, agenda or have they just created a monster that's gotten out of control?
2: Well, to some extent, I think they have created a monster that's gotten out of control. I mean, it started with the Tea Party. Um, you know, this this that was really funded and fomented um, to stop the adoption of any kind of national health care program, you know, around um, the Affordable Care Act um, and, you know, as it was coming into being. Um, and I think they thought that was useful because the last thing they want is a, is, a, is, a, is a national program that helps people in, um, in, in a way that they desperately need. Uh, what they want is to destroy the government so that they're not taxed or regulated, so that they can pollute, so that they can consolidate, so that they can abuse their workers. Um at a certain point though, they need a functioning stock market um and a banking system. Um so, you know, you know, I don't I Ian, I don't think they don't think they can have they can't quite control um the Matt Gateses uh and the Jim Jordans and the Marjorie Taylor Greens. Those people are really they're you know the spawn of of, of a very diabolical plan. Um that by definition is going to have some, um, some additional <laughs> consequences that they can't quite control.
0: Well, but those radicals that you just mentioned, they're all in the service of Donald Trump. They're, they're his slaves and you can't not mention him. He's the 900-pound gorilla, isn't he, in terms of taking the whole country off the rails.
2: Right. Although I think he said he was 230 pounds, but um, <laughs> um, and nobody's quite believed that believing that um, uh, 500 pounds might be more like it. Um, uh, yes, he's obviously involved here now, but I think of him as more of a tool um, than as a driver, um, at least it, we're in this regard. Um, but again, I think the people who are thinking that they could manipulate these tools Um, were not entirely, um, they were perhaps a little too confident of their ability to to exert ultimate control. Um, And there is some ability for these people to get um, away from them. But let's remember the vital point here. What Donald Trump did for them was he appointed three Supreme Court justices and a whole host of other federal judges who are now engaged in this massive project to you know, we think about it in terms of the craziness that's going on with the Fifth Circuit and, um, and uh, abort- the abortion pill, um, as well as all the other decisions that have come out of the Supreme Court that have been horrendous, but we are not paying attention to what they're doing in this other front. Um, and this has such significant and long-term consequences. It is lining the pockets of these plutocrats to the extent that they can keep funding the mobilization. And appointment of more judges to continue in this exercise so um i don't think donald trump you know he's a little bit out of their control but ultimately um if he becomes president again we're going to see more of the same and there's going to be more of the like of of amy coney barrett um jim ho on the fifth circuit uh and the rest of that cast of characters that is um You know, we look at them, we think, oh, abortion, uh, gay rights. Uh, And in the meantime, the Koch brothers are looking at them and thinking, oh, well, now we can, or or Google or or Microsoft or any of these others, Apple, we can buy up every competitor and shut them down. Oh, and by the way, we can break unions and lower wages um, and pollute. What could be better?
0: Well, just in closing, uh, Caroline, what can we do? What can our listeners do?
2: Well, You know, obviously, number one is to vote and participate. But number two is to really raise these issues um, around who gets appointed to the judiciary. We need judges who are not just interested in protecting our fundamental rights. Now, that's incredibly important. And I think the left and those who've worked on judicial appointments have been really focused on getting more civil rights lawyers, getting more public defenders um, and others onto the bench who are not just corporate lawyers and not just prosecutors. But what we really have been um, uh, remiss is that we haven't thought about economic power so much and understanding of the regulatory state. So a little bit of focus on labor lawyers, because, you know, um, thank God the unions have been on this and have paid attention. But we need a much broader vision of the whole economic structure, just like the right. Um, we need judges to understand what the real basis is behind the antitrust laws, which is to ensure that we don't have monopolistic and oligarchic um, a, a ruling class in this country. Um, and the judges need to be reeducated so that they go back to the original understanding of those laws and fight for all of us in our communities um, not to be run by a few companies in this country that then in turn run our government.
0: Well, Caroline Fredrickson, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Thank you, Ian. It's always great to talk to you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Caroline Fredrickson, a visiting professor of Georgetown Law and a strategic counsellor on democracy and power at the Open Markets Institute. She served as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office, a general counsel and legal director for NARAL Pro-Choice America, and during the Clinton administration, a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And in 2021, she was appointed as a member of President Biden's commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, and is the president emeritus of the American Constitution Society. And her books include the Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections. And she has an op-ed at The Atlantic, What I Most Regret About My Decades of Legal Activism. We're going to take a brief station break and we back looking into escalating tensions between India and Canada as India cancels Canadian visas in response to Prime Minister Trudeau's charge that Indian agents assassinated a Sikh activist on Canadian soil. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christian Luprek, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at the Royal Military College of Canada and Editor-in-Chief of the Canadian Military Journal. His research includes national security and defense policy, politically motivated violent extremism and terrorism, border security, and the political, economic, security, social and cultural implications of demographic change. His latest book's Include intelligence as democratic statecraft, patterns in border security, regional comparisons and security cooperation, governance, the Canada United States open border paradox. Welcome to background briefing, Christian Luprecht. Hello, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Christian, and tensions between Canada and uh, India on the rise with the Indian government on Wednesday urging its nationals in Canada, especially students, to exercise utmost caution as the situation deteriorates because on Monday before the Canadian Parliament, Prime Minister Trudeau said there was credible evidence that the government of India was behind the assassination of a Sikh activist killed in British Columbia some months ago. So, and they, India has reacted with tremendous indignation. So, what is the evidence, do you know, that the Prime Minister is talking about? Did India send a hit team three months ago to kill Hadeep Singh Nijar?
3: So, first, we have not seen any corroboration of that evidence in terms of claims made by other Five Eyes, allies, or partner countries. So, we have to go only, we only have the word of the Prime Minister. And if you listen carefully to his language, uh, it sounds like the evidence is somewhat circumstantial. So, that is to say that. Uh, uh, the smoking gun here, if there is one, certainly the wording from the Prime minister does not suggest um, as much uh, so uh, we'll we'll have to see you know you would think if we have very substantial credible evidence, uh, then the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is the federal police force in Canada that handles national security issues, would presumably simply open a criminal investigation against the individuals involved. We have done this before, even for extra, Territorial prosecution—that is to say, individuals who are not in Canada but who committed offences in Canada or against uh, Canadians. So uh, I think that's something to keep in mind as we look uh, on the, and we look at least on the surface of the allegations being made, uh, and uh, the caution by India, I think, is on the one hand, uh, India felt that it probably needed to respond in some manner, and on the other hand, look. Like the United States, Canada is a very diverse country, and it is clearly in our interest to make sure that people do not import uh, their ethnic nationalist, extremist, secessionist, sectarian violence and disputes uh, to our diverse societies. And so there is probably at least some reason for um, uh, nationals uh, of Indian descent to exercise some caution. Um, in terms of, uh, of, of possible other confrontations. We recently saw confrontations within the Eritrean community, for instance. Um, and this is precisely the problem here, that the prime minister, um, rather than coming straight out and saying that any form of political violence or violent extremism either perpetrated or Canadian soil by people in Canada Uh, or by other state or other types of agents who are trying to exercise such violence or violent extremism against Canada is just completely unacceptable. But this is not what we hear from our politicians because uh, there is a high risk here that at least in part, we're instrumentalizing national security because the Sikh diaspora in Canada is the single largest diaspora in the world. at 780,000 people, uh, and so there is at least some concern here that this is also about electoral pandering uh, to boutique ethnic constituencies. And, of course, in diverse societies, that to me strikes me as an incredibly dangerous political proposition by any political party or government.
0: Well, already, though, Canada has expelled an Indian diplomat who is supposedly with India's intelligence service known as the RAW, the Research and Analysis Wing? And apparently, India is reciprocated by expelling a Canadian diplomat in New Delhi who's supposedly with Canada's uh, CSIS. So, you already have a tit for tat going on there already, don't you?
3: So it is somewhat uh, surprising. Clearly, the prime minister must have had some sort of an epiphany uh, because, of course, this is a government that even after the diplomat's name was made public, it took them months to decide to expel uh, a, a Chinese diplomat who was closely linked to allegations of Uh, potentially illegal or criminal foreign interference uh, in Canadian electoral, federal electoral processes. Um, And here, of course, we have all of a sudden the prime minister coming out forcefully and immediately moving to expel a diplomat. So I think there's a couple of things going on here. One is, I think the prime minister is trying very hard to show that foreign interference is not just a problem when it comes to China, uh, but is also a problem when it comes to other Countries. Um, and of course, the Prime Minister is a significant uh, Sinophile component within his parties and within his sympathizers. So I think this is somewhat about uh, appeasing uh, that particular constituency. Um, it is also about the Prime Minister has generally been seen uh, in recent months on a number of other files as weak on issues of public safety and national security. And so, you know, conveniently right at the beginning of the opening of parliament next week, the prime minister uh, or this week, the prime minister makes this very bold announcement uh, to basically start out the parliamentary session. Uh, So he's very much, I think, trying to brandish his public safety and national security credentials And of course, often um, the prime minister has been accused of doing performative announcements, but then not moving to action. So expelling a diplomat is sort of uh, trying to show that he is moving to action. But of course... Look, I mean, usually diplomats are expelled in a rather sort of quiet fashion rather than turning this into a big public spat. And so one of the questions one has to ask, and one has to wonder about is uh, why did Canada not just quietly expel the diplomat to send a clear signal about displeasure to India? Why is the government opting to make this a big performative event on national and international media, especially at a time when the international community is very actively trying to court uh, China and China sympathies uh, when it comes to regional and international stability.
0: So in terms of the Sikh, the Sikh presence in in Canada, as you mentioned, it's just, it's the biggest Sikh diaspora in the world. And the Sikh community in in India largely in in the Punjab where they I think they're about sixty percent of the population, and they talk about creating the state of Alistan which is their own separatist state in Punjab and that's of course a, a red line for the Indian government and there's been a history of of, of uh, pretty bloody clashes be, between the Indian government and the Sikhs when the Indian military took the Golden Temple and that re, as a result of that the Congress Party leaders, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards in 1984 so And then, of course, an Air India airliner took off from Canada, I think it was in the 1980s, um, and shortly after takeoff was blown up. And that was attributed to Sikh nationalists. So there's a bit of a, a bloody history there between the Sikh community and the Indian government, which has spilled over into Canada.
3: Certainly the government of Canada has reason to have concern, as you point out. Uh, The single deadliest terrorism event in Canadian history was uh, the bombing of Air India Flight 182 in 1985. It was until 9-11-2001 also the Uh, single largest act of aviation terrorism in the world. So certainly the government of Canada has concerns uh, and rightly so when it comes to um, political violence related to uh, disputes um, uh, about the political disputes about the status of the Punjab. Look, but we can also understand that uh, just about any government in the world is concerned about their territorial integrity uh, and of course wants to make sure that if there are going to be um, uh, disputes about territorial integrity, we don't settle those violently. We settle those through proper international usually United Nations mediated, uh, mediated processes. Um, the uh, curiosity here politically is, as you point out, not just is it the largest Sikh diaspora um, in the world, it also has a disproportionate clout on a per capita basis in key electoral constituencies. Um, and it is a uh, very large component of the Indian diaspora within Canada. So uh, its political importance domestically is not to be underestimated. And that's not just when it comes to, if you look at the p- statements made by all party leaders in regards to this particular event, uh, there have also been uh, uh, e- the, the party that is currently in a supply and confidence agreement with the uh, governing a federal Liberal Party, the New Democratic Party of Canada. Its leader, uh, Jack Meets Singh, who also hails from that community, has previously been questioned, for instance, um, uh, both about the way he wears his particular turban and whether that might express sympathies and whether he will denounce all forms of. Uh, politically motivated violent extremism, and his answers to that have been rather uh, ambiguous. So there are certainly um, domestic politics that are playing into, I think, the calculus uh, by the different political parties. And I think that's ultimately unfortunate because it can't be in anyone's interest um, for any politician to sympathize with actors that advocate uh, political violence or violent extremism. At the same time, we must, of course, emphasize and stress that the vast majority of the um, uh, Sikh diaspora in Canada is perfectly peaceful and abhors and denounces any form uh, of political violence, in particular violence related uh, to ambitions for uh, to Khalistan-sympathized um, uh, uh, ambitions.
0: But if Prime Minister Trudeau is correct in suggesting that there's credible evidence that India may have been Involved in the assassination, and it may have been in you know, Indian agents with their intelligence service the raw that is pretty explosive and he had a pretty prickly meeting at the g twenty did he not recently in New Delhi, which was compounded by the fact that his plane had technical problems and he got stuck there and I, he didn't he doesn 't get on very well with Modi, which in my in, to my mind actually could be construed as a badge of honor, because Modi is rolling back democracy, and he's a a Hindu nationalist, and it's the nationalists who are most opposed to uh, Sikh separatism. They're the ones that have changed this country from being very secular and multicultural and multiracial and multilingual into a uh, Hindu-only state. So there's a lot of blame to be placed at Modi's feet, surely.
3: So countries keep foreign human intelligence services for two reasons, and one of them is to conduct assassinations. So it is not outside of the realm of possibilities uh, that this is was indeed a coordinated, effectively assassination, um, uh, uh, extraterritorial assassination by Indian intelligence. Uh, but as one of my uh, uh, w- one of my colleagues of, uh, of of Indian descent sort of uh, pointed out to me today, Christian, have you seen my country? Do you really think our people could carry out that coordinated event? You know, I think uh, the audience will need to draw their uh, draw their own conclusions um, whether this is within the realm. of of possibilities or not. Uh, Certainly, Canada has had previous challenges with foreign intelligence services um, in particular, for instance, the Ministry of State Security from China actively um, intimidating its diaspora community uh, challenges around uh, Iranian intelligence agents, um, intimidating uh, the diaspora community, uh, but of course, engaging engaging in blatant uh, criminal acts. You know, this is the sort of behavior that we expect from states such as Russia. Uh, When it comes to, for instance, its expats in the United Kingdom, it is not the sort of behavior that we would expect, let alone want to condone uh, from a country that we are courting as a key ally within the region. At the same time, it is notable that, of course, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau had significant uh, challenges obtaining bilateral meetings with world leaders at the recent uh, summit, which shows how isolated Canada is, not just on this file, but on foreign affairs. And part of that is, of course, when Canada is looking for support uh, from allies and partners on files such as this, Canada, of course, in particular in the Indo-Pacific, has long been missing in action. And so when our allies and partners in the region are looking for support from Canada, um, when it comes Japan, Korea, Singapore, Australia, uh, also India, um, uh, there's often crickets from Canada, and Canada often doesn't even show up to the relevant international meetings, uh, at least not uh, with high-level political delegation, and so Canada can't be entirely surprised. When it is getting the cold shoulder from India and also from its key allies and partners that would be able perhaps to um, put some pressure on India on this particular file uh it'll be interesting to see where the government of Canada is able to produce evidence uh that can actually call out um indian agents in the way for instance the uk government has done uh when it comes to the perpetrators of uh of, of similar acts uh in the united kingdom there by russian intelligence
0: so just in closing then uh, christian it, it doesn't look like anybody's uh, in terms of can- canada's allies are stepping up to help it in its criticism of India. And the Trudeau government has deteriorating relations with the government of India as well as the government of China, right? And in both cases, Xi Jinping and Modi feel a little bit slighted by Trudeau. Is, he, is there a, a legitimate criticism of, of Trudeau's own diplomatic finesse?
3: Well, I think there's a broader criticism of the way this government uh, in particular of its uh, eight somewhat years in power uh, has perhaps not managed the foreign affairs portfolio. Uh, as deftly as it could. It has alienated a significant amount of other countries with missteps and remarks uh, that could have been avoided. So some of this is perhaps ill management. Some of this is poor advice. But I think broadly, it is also an ignorance of Canada more broadly of the Indo-Pacific region. Canada is primarily oriented towards our primary strategic partner, the United States, and the secondary strategic ally, that is to say, Europe. And so for a medium sized uh, country, a traditional middle power such as Canada, uh, it leaves relatively few resources to engage in what is ac- arguably um, the most sort of uh, rapidly evolving region in terms of politics, economics and security in the world. That is to say the Indo-Pacific region. And so it suggests that Canada has not provided and not uh, provided the assets, the resources that really um, a, Canada, a a country with a long Pacific coast uh, and a long relationship with the region uh, should be providing in terms of its investment investments. investments um, in that region, and so I think this is just indication of sort of further missteps that uh, uh, Canada in part is missing out on the 21st century uh, because uh, it is not playing ahead. It has a poor understanding of the region, uh, and on top of that, it has uh, not the relationships with partners and allies that it needs to get things done. One of the hallmarks of the Indo-Pacific is, of course, that there is no easy coordinating international organizations such as NATO among countries. And so the transaction costs to engage in the region are very high. They require significant foreign affairs investments. And these are simply investments that repeated governments of all political stripes uh, since the end of the Cold War have been unwilling to make in the region. And we see the consequences of that now.
0: Well, Christian Loupereck, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it.
3: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Christian Nuprecht, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at the Royal Military College of Canada and the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Military Journal, whose research includes national security and defence policy, politically motivated violent extremism and terrorism, border security and the political, economic, security, social and cultural implications of demographic change. His latest books include Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, "Patterns in Border Security, Regional Comparisons and Security, Cooperation, and Governance, the Canada-United States Open Border Paradox. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that next door in